Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 111, and I'm excited to be back, and we have a great one for you today. We got Joe McGeary with us. We're going to be talking about all things punk rock and therapy, uh, which is close, very, very close to my own heart, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a sec, but I just wanted to acknowledge um, not having put out an episode I think since January. Um, so I just wanted to let you know what's up. Um, I lost my mother in March and that's the reason, uh, I haven't been very active here. My mother had been struggling with dementia for several years and, um, we lost her in March and that's been very hard and I've been attending to that. And, uh, I wanted you to, uh, I wanted just to let you know that. And also I wanted to just acknowledge my mother, Anne, my mother, Anne Hoff, who I loved very much. And I know she loved me. As a matter of fact, her last words to me were, I love you. And as hard as it was, there were moments of beauty uh, in, in all of it as well. And so, yeah, that's that's what's been going on. And I just wanted to let you know that. Um, but now let's uh, get to our show. Um, you know, it, I want to just tell a quick story. It was the summer of 1979 in Huntington Beach, California, when my life changed. And how it changed was my best friend Richard's older brother, Jim, um, you know, called us into his room uh, in this particular day, in this summer day, and he had this album he wanted us to listen to. And I remember, I still remember it to this day when he, he put that needle down on that vinyl. And I started to hear the first chords, I suppose, of Holidays in the Sun by the Sex Pistols. The album was Never Mind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. And I remember just hearing that and that album and the rage and all this stuff. And it just, I don't know, it just cha it would change my life. So that was my entry into punk rock. And, uh, uh, and it created a journey for me and, uh, and learnings and understandings and uh, adventures and all kinds of stuff. And so... Some good, some great, and some not so good, quite honestly. Uh, my poor mother, and uh, yeah, so um, yeah, so then that you know that was my entry into punk rock, and and just uh, it was just uh, life changing and identity forming and all that kind of stuff. So so I'm excited to talk to Joe McGarry about you know punk rock and. Um, and its influence on him and, and how he works with it in his work as a counselor and as a professor and all of that kind of stuff. So I think you'll really enjoy this one. At least I did. I got I to gotta go back and down memory lane a little bit and just get to talk about the scene with Joe, too. So anyway, for those that don't know, Joe McGeary is a licensed mental health counselor and associate professor of counseling and psychology at Leslie University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a long-term member of the Boston punk and hardcore scene. As a bassist and a vocalist, Joe has recorded 17 albums and toured extensively across the United States and into Canada. Joe has integrated his punk roots with his academic role and enjoys opportunities to explore how punk's DIY ethos can be applied in situations where people are seeking to challenge or change problematic discourses. 
His clinical approach is influenced by tenets of narrative therapy, trauma-informed practices, critical psychology, and brief therapies, as well as by transdisciplinary thinkers such as Gregory Bates and, and Edgar, Edgar Morin. In addition to teaching, Joe maintains a small private counseling and supervision practice in Massachusetts and Connecticut. He is also involved in an international project supporting Ukrainian teachers and child psychologists who are serving uh, children in the context of war, and he's a member of a group of expressive therapists, clinicians, and advocates working with asylum seekers and their supports in the Juarez in Mexico, El Paso, Texas metropolitan area. So without further ado, let's meet Joe. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. I, I got introduced to you by one of our listeners, which I really appreciate, too. And, um, and you know, I, you have a background um, in punk rock okay? <laughs> and in playing in bands. And now you're a counselor, uh, academic, teacher, professor, mm -hmm. et cetera. So um, I, too, you know, I grew up in the Southern California punk scene. Uh, it was very formative in my upbringing, too. So uh, so I was excited to kind of have you on and kind of talk. And, and, you know, I still find and I think some we're going to talk about it, that it's been very influential in my life and still informs my life in various ways. And uh, having that kind of formative uh, upbringing in the scene here, at least in Southern California. And, uh, and so I'm excited to have you here and uh, kind of maybe talk about some of these ideas. But um, I guess I'm wondering maybe if you could start by describing how you got involved in punk rock. And I know you've played in bands, might still play in bands, and, and what you're doing now. Absolutely. Uh, first, a uh, shout out to Brendan for introducing yeah, us. Thanks, um, Brendan. You know, so it's a pleasure to, to, to be here and talk about it. Uh, I guess to put a pin in it, uh, for me, uh, age 11 was when a lot of things shifted in my life. Not coincidentally, it's also when I was introduced, well, first to heavy metal uh, and then to punk. Um, and when I think back on it, uh, I find it useful to kind of use an analogy of uh, stringed instruments and like the resonant frequencies uh, in stringed instruments. So, you know, for the musicians who are listening, uh, you know that if you're in a room with a guitar and you make other sounds, certain pitches will cause the guitar strings to just naturally start to vibrate. And I think there's something of a uh, resonant frequency to our heart strings as well. And for some of us, when we hear distorted guitars, you know, heavy drums, screamed vocals, we start to reverberate. You know, things start to make sense on uh, an intuitive felt sense level. Um, and it is, you know, I've said this elsewhere, it's an instance in which external dissonance provides an experience of internal consonance. Um, and that is uh, a powerful experience just, you know, beginning and end but also a potential doorway into um the change mm -hmm. uh, growth and and even healing so um you know that's started to be what happened for me uh it just i, I got into listening to music a few years later i got a guitar started a, a, a my first band with some buddies and none of us knew how to play instruments mm -hmm. so you can imagine you know the quality of the music we produced but punk is a low threshold entry point. We didn't have to sound good or, or be good in order to be a band. So um, there was uh, an experience of 
expression, but also of empowerment uh, that even just being in my buddy's basement, you know, it, it brought us. Hmm. And so that, that, that fueled me in ways that matter. And then um, jumping forward when I was in college, I was a loud rock director for my, you know, small colleges radio station. Hmm. I began playing bands that, you know, that all got me hooked into um, my local Boston hardcore and punk scene, mm-hmm. um, which lucky for me has a rich history of its own. So I get connected to, as far as, you know, punk and hardcore goes, a, a, a community. Um, and that community also connected me to purpose beyond just wanting to make music. So that also, you know, it, it built, it built. And eventually uh, I became a licensed mental health counselor uh, I learned about narrative therapy um, from a wonderful human being who's not a punk, but is a beautiful example of how one can embody it without being it. Mm. Um, and eventually I concocted an idea for a doctoral dissertation that combined my day job and my night gig. And uh, I studied how hardcore punk culture can be a context for what's referred to in narrative work as preferred identity development. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, since then, you know, I've continued to play in a bunch of bands. Uh, one band, uh, we were writing an album right while I was doing my dissertation work. So I have an album that is an offshoot of my uh, the data I collected in my dissertation. So that, that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I published a few articles related to the dissertation inquiry. And um, for the last, you know, five or so years, I've been teaching counseling and psychology as my full-time gig. Um, but I got to say, before I, I, I um, pause from answering your question, mm-hmm. this is the first time in over a quarter of century that I find myself not in a permanent band. Just a couple of months mm-hmm. ago, I stepped aside from the group I was playing bass in. Mm-hmm. And so other than a couple of fill-in shows lined up for me this summer, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of grappling with the reality that an important part of my identity is not as front and center right now as it, you know, seemingly always has been. So, Hmm. um, it's a unique point in my journey at which we're meeting right now. Right. I was going to ask if you were still in a band at the moment. So yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, uh, yeah. And you reminded me, I, uh, we had a little garage band too. My brother played drums. I played bass. We were the rodents and we would make, imaginary uh gig flyers we never had a gig but (laughs) you know but i it was our way of maybe you know trying to materialize a gig in some way but um yeah that's great um so you you write a lot about like punk values and Mm -hmm. i guess i'm i'm curious uh, what would you say are punk values and how have they informed you as a counselor a human etc you know I think it is important to start by stating the obvious that uh, punk values are not a monolith. Um, sure. And, you know, uh, mine are influenced by my geographic and uh, my, my temporal context, too. So basically the like the hyper local niche within the Boston punk and hardcore scene where I cut my teeth. Um, also, you know, my interpretation uh, of the values um are influenced by the elements of my intersectional identity that are unique to me. You know, like a lot of folks, my first rebellion was against my parents. My father was a cop. So there was a very early adoption of the sort of questioning authority uh, piece of things in a lot of ways for me. Um, And, you know, I grew up around and I I still 
primarily find myself uh, among white people who are native-born New Englanders and oftentimes who identify as male. And that's a lot of who I've encountered in, in, encountered in my local scene. Um, but by contrast, you know, when touring the Southwest, uh, I noticed a lot of indigenous and Latinx folks in the scene, which is not something that can be said so much about East Coast hardcore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this all matters because, you know, when looking back at what our values are, I think we do ourselves and everyone a disservice if we don't first acknowledge the people who help us enact the values. So um, for me, uh, what I've gravitated towards and what I've held on to um, from those who have influenced me is uh, first and foremost, the DIY ethos, mm-hmm. um, a, a change orientation, um, being action oriented and enacting uh, the things that matter, you know, and that's done uh, through going to shows, organizing shows, producing zines, being in a band, protesting, doing activism, engaging in health and wellness practices, and just in general aligning one's life as best as one can with values that make sense. Mm. You know, so um, one absent but implied sentiment in a lot of punk is that there's something wrong with the world, you know, and that change can and should happen. So underlying all the ideas for me is the presence of, uh, I guess, a, a sense of hopefulness for things yet to come Mm. and i found this hopefulness at the core of my approach to clinical work and supervision um which i think has been born from my connection first to the scene yeah wonderful um you know, I guess I'm wondering if you could say how punk rock has informed your, you, I mean, you've touched on it, you informed your political and social critique, and mm-hmm. how does it continue to in, inform your view of the world? Mm. You know, immediately what comes to my mind is, um, you know, the dead Kennedys turned me on to a lot of geopolitical controversies, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it, it was a, an education outside of textbooks mm. that uh, was subversive. And uh, not only was it an education about the specific uh, issues that they and other bands were singing about, but an education in how to think critically and uh, how to give direction um, for my fury, you know, in a way that was was really helpful. Um, and more broadly, learning about zines, punk collectives, DIY venues, you know, all the stuff that goes into making a local scene that helped me to, I guess, first understand and then eventually participate in ways of acting in contrast to the dominant discourses that felt unethical and oppressive. And even, you know, for me as a kid who, um, you know, I was checking off almost all the boxes on the privilege checklist Mm -hmm. and still things just didn't sit right. And at first it was an unnamed sense of disease and disquiet. Mm. And then being able to, to sort of learn these lessons through engagement with the scene and with the community, um, you know, fleshed that out for me. And, and um, you know, that's part of why when I was exposed to the narrative ideas, I experienced another one of those instances of like my, my heartstrings resonating. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I, you're having me recall I was in, grad school and I had a teacher that we had to 
do a quick answer a question really quick kind of exercise in some ways and the question mm-hmm. i got asked was when did you for who was your first influence in social justice or some some sort of question like that and my response was the clash <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know that's that was my you know for like you said that was you know kind of my political education at the time so totally um all right so you've also written about uh that parallels exist between punk culture and narrative therapy practices and i'm wondering if you could say more about that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah um i think both are action oriented you know what i love about narrative therapy is um oftentimes it's referred to as narrative therapy and community work mm-hmm. and uh david epstein uh, one of the co-founders of narrative um you know i i recall him saying that in tough times we do projects and um you know not to paint it with too broad of a brush stroke but um what is uh, a diy punk show other than a project a communal project that people are, are putting together um enacting values enacting community creating space um you know and, and all those things and mm-hmm. so there's um you know this action-oriented community focus um investment in moving from thinly described internalized senses of things to thickly described intentional relationships with them and i think going to the diy ethos a lot of that is questioning um you know commercialism materialism mm-hmm. uh what it is to live in a society where um you know monetization and commoditization um, are central to our ways of being and understanding and engaging Um, how many people know how to live off of the grid you know how reliant are we on the systems around us Um, and because the answer to those questions is you know the system is uh, necessary for a lot of folks survival at this point because we've not learned other ways the opportunity to at least dabble in, experiment with other ways um, is pretty meaningful in connecting to um, knowledges and expertise that maybe we even have, but but have lost connection to. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there's one piece. Um, you know, I've also seen how both punk and narrative can uh, utilize um, experiences of personalized expertise and and don't just stop at pathologizing folks you know don't just stop at ways of um reducing a person's experience uh and reinforcing marginalization and systemic harms um you know there is that opportunity to uh to be weird mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um and to to not shrink from that uh where in the best case scenario um and i know this is not entirely true but in the best case scenario um punk is uh, a welcoming diverse place mm-hmm. ian mckay um you know minor threat in fugazi he's called it um you know a, a creative space and i think that that um in the best case scenario the parts of uh punk culture that i want to uh stay connected with um align with that as does my experience mm-hmm. of narrative work so yeah. um so those pieces a sense of critical curiosity and the emphasis of deconstructing problematic discourses as part of this co-creation of social constructs um you know narrative gave me tools to more fully integrate 
and more constructively channel the critiques I was learning from Jello Biafra and you know <laughs> Imakai and 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 all the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for me, um, like I said before, is why when introduced to narrative, I, I felt that similar uh, resonance mm-hmm. with the values and the ways of being, which then I was able to integrate in my ways of working. Right. And when one has that sort of uh, degree of consonance between um, what you do and why you do it, um, I think not only does that um, matter in meaningful ways, but it also can be transformative. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And, uh, um, you know, I have many friends who continue to identify with punk culture and haven't aged out. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have a similar experience in your, your own personal experience too. And yeah. I'm wondering how you, how you make sense of this, like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, as I'm, uh, creeping forward into my forties here, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm finding myself in a shifting relationship to the question. Like I mm-hmm. said, um, you know, I'm not actively touring in the band at a moment. Um, and you know, so when I walk by my stack of guitars and amps in my apartment, you know, sometimes, um, I hear them asking me if I'm going to use them again, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I hope so, but, um, but this sort of period of static hibernation, it's new for me and, and it's not related to my age and things like that, but I can't help but conflate, uh, the fact that I'm not in a band at the moment, which was a choice of mine. I, I chose to step out from uh, a band of wonderful people that I was playing with. Um, I can't help but conflate that with this idea of aging out whenever it comes up, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I sit with this and it is part of, um, sort of my own, uh, exploration at the moment, but, um, where I sit right now, uh, you know, playing music is only a part of what matters about punk culture and right. the DIY ethos. Right. You know, I know a lot of folks who have parlayed the skills they learned from engaging in DIY and change oriented punk into businesses and to lifestyles, you know, that support them doing things differently than the scripts that they were handed you know, or, or the messages they've been given, um, as kids. And so I, uh, at, at the risk of creating a false binary, you know, I also know that sometimes not aging out is akin to stagnating. Um, hmm. I, I think of, uh, a band that was very influential on me. I, I'll refrain from naming them, but when I saw them not too long ago, the singer, his dentures fell out in the middle of a song. Mm-hmm. And, and he didn't have, he couldn't articulate his words during that moment. And he didn't have the, the energy to continue the, the powerful vocal performance, uh, which is necessary for that style of music. And I found myself shifting quickly from, um, being there in this moment of sort of, you know, ecstatic, um, uh, embodiment and you know singing along to all the songs i love shifting to a sense of oh no mm-hmm. you know feeling uh, a, a sense of of feeling bad for for him because he was you know obviously trying to fix his dentures and saw the problem but also uh, a sense of loss uh for sort of the promise implied by uh the music mm-hmm. and and so mm-hmm. you know so aging out can be 
connected to um, a continued uh, embodiment of the punk ethic in ways that that uh, stand outside of just doing what's within the boundaries of music, which itself I think is somewhat antithetical to um, the the values of punk that you, you shouldn't be hemmed in by um, having to do the same three chord, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, uh, guitar, bass, drums, vocals thing that you've been doing for however many decades, you know, mm -hmm. so, um, but if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just uh, share a, a quick aside yeah, sure. from uh, my own um, musical uh, ventures. Uh, I'm reminded of a, a song from one of my old bands, and I guess for some context, there's a band from Boston that had a big influence on me called Blood for Blood. Mm -hmm. And one theme in a few Blood for Blood songs was what they sort of self-described as their wasted youth crew, you know, a bit of a double entendre there, right? But it 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 poetically articulated some of what made that band, you know, um, what it was, mm -hmm. you know, special in its own way. And so anyhow, um on the album that I did as an extension of my dissertation work. Um, there was one song inspired by some of the interviews um, that I had done um, whose lyrics posed questions around this topic of aging in and I guess aging out um, of the punk scene. And, um, you know, taking the liberty to, to quote uh, myself there, mm -hmm. it, uh, the lyrics were uh, for part of the song, we fought nail and tooth and along the way we learned some truth. But despite our gains, one question remains. What happens after we've wasted our youth? Mm. We're not 24 anymore. So how the fuck do you act your age? Mm. It's time we work for more and channel the rage because tattoos fade. Mm. Nice. All right. Um, you've been speaking a lot about D DIY practices, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you could say a little bit more about that, how they've influenced you, your work, your identity mm -hmm. development, and, um, and, and with your clients. Yeah. Um, for those who are listening and, and may not be intimately familiar, I think it's important to draw a distinction between uh, the, the DIY ethos that um, I found in punk and the DIY um, that is sold to us by, you know, your local hardware store, um, that you can come in and redo your bathroom this weekend, do it yourself. You know, um, mm -hmm. a, uh, a, a friend of mine from the scene, you know, she would say, uh, do it yourself, but never alone. Um, and it, it's actually do it together. People have said, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, the, the ethos there, again, it's not just that you can learn how to, to do something. It's that you are engaging in an activity as a statement or as uh, an intentional choice to go uh, against or to step outside of uh, that which is part of the uh, dominant discourse in ways that are, are not helpful, not aligned with the stuff that matters to you and the stuff that from your experience can make the world um, more of what it could and should be. So, um, so that matters because I think it's easy. The term has been co-opted. You know, uh, DIY means uh, many things. And so for me, that's a bit of, of what it means when I reference it. Um, so, you know, how it comes up in, in my work, um, you know, I don't know if it's unique to me in my work, but I noticed that um, in the therapeutic spaces that I inhabit, um, there's room for dissonance and disquiet. 
and there's room for righteous indignation. Hmm. Um, in fact, I was in a conversation this morning. It was uh, more of a supervision conversation than a, than a counseling conversation. Um, but we were talking, um, a counselor in training was, was asking for my opinions on self-care. Um, and she's from the scene. So, you know, we both share professional and musical connections. And so we're talking. And um, in this conversation, we ended up noting that the discussion of self-care often falsely invites us to equate self-care solely with stress reduction. But, you know, what about the benefits of intentional, balanced, but intentional stress induction, such as going to a punk show, playing aggressive music? For me, distance running is restorative, mm. although stressful. So, um, you know, we chuckled, we came to uh, a bit of a, an analogy um, in this conversation that it kind of sums it up. You know, the self-cleaning mode of an oven is super fucking hot. So um, there's room for that in, in my work. And I think part of the capacity for that comes from um, the experiences I've had with punk and DIY. Um, you know, there's, uh, I guess, one more uh, quick story that comes to my mind. Um, recently in uh, my teaching, we do a capstone course hmm. and... Um, it's co-taught by all the core faculty and all the students who are graduating come. So, you know, we had about, you know, let's say 70 people in the room just uh, about a week ago. Um, and so at the end of this uh, experience to close it out, one of my colleagues invited me to do this exercise where basically, um, you know, I, I invite the group to, to think about everything that had happened through their program, the good, the bad, the things you want to cheer for, the things that make you want to, you know, just scream in frustration. Um, notice the body, notice everything. You know, we go through this whole experience. Everyone's gathered in this tight circle. And the invitation then is to um, bring it all to the present and from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, you know, sort of on the count of three, just let it all out in this um, full-on, full-body scream. And, um, you know, so... We did that, um, and one of the folks came up to me afterwards, um, and this person's from the scene, and said, you know, it was moving to be given permission to scream after years of screaming without permission. Hmm. So what sticks with me here related to clinical work is the importance both of the integration and the dissolution of the self, which I believe punk and clinical work both invite. Um, there's an element to both that I think has the potential to inspire um, transformative or, or transcendent um, packets of experience, to steal a, a phrase from Jeff Zeig. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you kind of going back to what I was saying about the, the, the gentleman whose dentures fell out, um, you, there's a certain physical capacity necessary to uh, engage in uh, hardcore punk performance. If you fake it when yelling into a mic or if you fake it while dancing in the pit, things are likely to not go well, hmm. you know? So punk taught me how to step forward fully into the moment, which is something that I believe can be done in the service of clients in clinical contexts. Um, for me, that can mean... Uh, you know, attuning to my instincts and my felt sense so that I can um, like most 
fully utilize the the subtleties of the interpersonal exchange maybe increasing you know the likelihood that um neither of the participants in the conversation has had that particular experience before because if problems are at least partly defined as unhelpful patterns in a person's life the significance of doing something anything that's outside of the parameters of the problem it's both disruptive to the problem saturated narrative and in support of a more creative engaged intentional next step you know and and, and i'm reflecting as i'm speaking here that at some point i've lost the distinction uh, between whether i'm talking about punk or whether i'm talking about my clinical work mm. and i'm kind of happy that um the lines have blurred there because i think it, it it speaks to the question that you asked yeah wonderful all right a couple more questions for you uh you write about song you've written about song lyrics and identity formation and i'm wondering if you could say more about how you might use song lyrics in your work hmm. in addition to i guess the low-hanging fruit of playing music in session um whether that's you know listening to music and and um talking about the meaningful lyrics that a person brings with the songs that they bring or you know actually picking up an instrument playing new music um i guess what stands out for me most in response to your question is um the relative ease i feel with being able to spot problem saturated narratives mm -hmm. as well as how my experience engaging with the diy ethos has enabled me to be more comfortable collaborating with folks on ideas that fuel the search for another way, you know, like I was saying before, stepping outside of that, which is known and familiar. Um, I mean, to some extent, just about any conversation can start off with a tacit agreement that things don't have to be this way, but the problem sometimes is even identifying what do we, what do we mean by things is an issue. And then what do we mean by, this way and outside of that what does that even mean you know and um that is i think uh uh rather uh rich uh territory for conversation um and in terms of the lyrics themselves i think of um pat flynn the singer of what i will argue to be hands down all across the board all things considered the best hardcore band ever and i know that that is a, a a controversial statement to make pat flynn sang for the band have heart and pat talks about how for him uh lyric writing is cathartic how after organizing his thoughts on paper and screaming the words you know full intensity the things that were bothering him just didn't seem to bother him as much anymore and he talks about the power of having people screaming his words back to him with all their hearts, you know, and that's evidence that for, at least for folks like Pat, and I would say in my experience as well, writing and performing meaningful, meaningful song lyrics changes you. Mm -hmm. So the low threshold for involvement in punk means that just about anybody can start a band and be in that position. And if not, that the DIY ethos means that there's little to no barrier between a band 
in an audience and you know folks are often explicitly invited to share the mic so that provides just about anybody who walks into the room who wants it an opportunity to scream those meaningful lyrics too and to be witnessed by a room full of people sometimes literally held up you know yeah. atop a crowd of people who are uh, physically supporting you so you know these are stances that people take hmm. uh, a lot of the time punk choruses are constructed to be easy to sing along with and a lot of times the choruses contain important phrases um that that identify the intentional stances being taken by the performers so the more we know about where we stand the more we know about what matters to us the more we enact what matters to us the more we connect to who we want to be and the more we do this in community and with those witnesses the more we are actively engaging in the process of socially constructing our preferred identities mm-hmm. you know there's there's something really profound at least to me about being moved in these sort of ways and for that experience of having your heartstrings vibrating and then realizing you're in a room full of people who are starting to vibrate too hmm. you know there's um few things that provide that space and that permission to move into such an active fertile creative and cathartic space that's great and uh I have another question for you because I and, I and I know you've written about, you've critiqued the scene a bit and you said something earlier that really resonated with me about when I got into the scene, it was a really diverse, um, creative, all kinds of sexualities, uh, fashion, uh, all kinds of different stuff. And then something happened where the violence showed up. And, and I also, I think I've said this in a previous video before, I grew up with a guy who ended up being a co-founder of um, P9, um, Public Enemy Number 1, which was, I think, now arguably one of the largest like white supremacy skinhead gangs. And, and I knew him from the scene, and so um, he ended up being assassinated by his own gang. But um, so there was that. So there is that critique, right? And I'm wondering, you know, and I know yeah. you've written about it. It's some other that critique, and probably others. And I'm wondering, you know, what if you have anything to say about that, or like what happened to the scene, or some of those kind of darker aspects of the scene? Yeah, uh, I think first of you know the fact that I'm connected to Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, you know, straight edge became a, a big thing here and not unlike other places, unfortunately, um, it, it was a segue to violence. So people started saying, Hey, um, I like the idea of not giving, you know, the alcohol corporations, my money, um, not, um, diluting my ability to, to think critically, not, um, messing that ad- advantage that edge that i have um so i'm going to live a clean life and then they said well if you are in my space and you're messing things up um i'm not going to allow that and it turned into a violent policing uh, of the scene um you know stories of people who are smoking a cigarette outside a venue getting jumped you know um and that clearly 
starts to step away from this notion of making uh, healthier, better choices for self and community. Um, but yeah, it's an absolute reality. And while we can talk about the catharsis of dancing in the pit and all that stuff like that, I mean, ultimately people are punching and kicking, you know, and um, I, I know I've had my fair share of injuries um, and as anybody who's gone to shows, I mean, you, you've either been injured or you've seen injuries and we take that sometimes as par for the course. Um, however, while that may be a piece of um, a lot of punk and hardcore, I think this is where, um, again, in line with, with narrative uh, approaches, um, we ask into the details. We get curious about the connections to the values and the intentions and the beliefs that undergird uh, the actions people take. And by so doing, by shifting to that more intentional relationship, we can start to say, hmm, I support A, but B doesn't really align with, with uh, what got me here. The important thing is that continued uh, engagement with the, the critical consciousness, not just to get into the scene and be there and great, whatever, um, but to be able to interrogate oneself and whether it be uh, the music I'm playing, the venues I'm going to, the labels I associate with, um, the other bands that I book shows with, um, the the what I do allow and don't allow in this DIY squat, you know, that's a venue, how I help to cultivate that community and, to, for lack of a better word, police that community. Do I even, you know, endorse a word such as that, right? Mm -hmm. All of these pieces... There are examples out there of how people have really um, dug into doing that work in ways that are meaningful. Um, and so while being amongst the elements of imperfection, I think we can look to find the inspirations. And, um, you know, I, I come back a lot of times to um, this visual of a circle pit. And I oftentimes ask folks to consider, you know, a circle pit for folks who haven't been to shows. Basically, it's a group of people moving in a circular direction, you know, um, where we come together connected to these ideas um, for at least some elements of punk and hardcore that is change oriented. Are we engaging in a circle pit just chasing our tails or are we fomenting a revolution? Hmm. Great question. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Last question for you, Joe, and I really appreciate all of this and thank you. Um, a question I like to ask all my guests is, uh, you know, what books, films, bands, idea, I threw that one in for you, bands, <laughs> ideas, thinkers are capturing your attention these days? Yeah, no, it's, it's a, a beautiful question, but always a tough one because, you know, it requires uplifting some folks, um, mm -hmm over others and yeah. <laughs> necessitates remembering the names of the bands I've seen, you know? So, <laughs> um, so the thing that jumps to me first, um, I'm excited about, uh, Judith Herman has a new book coming out. It's mm -hmm. called, uh, truth and repair, how trauma survivors envision justice. And the reason that this, uh, jumps out to me, it's not a narrative book. Um, and as far as I know, Judith is not a, a punk in any way, shape or form, but her story is fascinating. Um, you know, back in, I think it was like 88, she proposed um, this notion of complex PTSD. Um, and it 
was part of uh, a revolution in the field of how we understand um, bad stuff happening to people. You know, she was one of the first folks to say that it isn't just soldiers in war who can experience psychological trauma. Um, and then just as she and her peers were kind of gaining traction in the early 90s, um, she tripped and fell and had like a brutal knee injury. And um, it, it resulted in uh, the formation of nerve tumors in her knee went undiagnosed for 25 years. So in the meantime, she went through every treatment option, no success. She was tormented by this pain. Her career was derailed. And ultimately the doctors started, you know, questioning, is she making it up? You know, um, so she's discounted on a multiple levels here. Um, and then as the story goes in 2019, she's seeing a doctor for, I think it was for arthritis or something like that. And the doctor just through conversation happened to tell her about this new research on this thing called nerve tumors. And it kind of aligned with what she was describing. So they looked into it. She got the diagnosis. She had the tumors removed and she got back on track finally. So as you likely know, complex PTSD has never made it into the DSM. It's not a, a, a diagnosis that people can get insurance reimbursement for in the United States. Um, although the ICD-11 does acknowledge its existence. Complex PTSD starts to look at the community and cultural and historic um, uh, systemic uh, elements of trauma that the current conceptualization of post-traumatic stress disorders does not fully capture. So I just, I, I sit here as she's in her eighties now putting out this new book, just fascinated, wondering about the course of our field as it relates to supporting folks whose families and communities have been through awful stuff and who have inherited legacies of oppression and, and pain, how those trajectories might have been different if Judith hadn't tripped on something that she didn't see because her hands were full in 1994, mm. you know? Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about her book and it brings to my mind uh, a phrase that one of my colleagues and mentors, uh, Jared Cass uses um, in his book on a person-centered approach to psycho-spiritual maturation. He talks about humanity's chain of pain and how a lot of our efforts, and I think in this case, um, Judith Herman's uh, new book would be speaking to how to disrupt humanity's chain of pain. And um, I don't know, chain of pain kind of sounds like a hardcore band to me. So <laughs> it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, Joe, thanks for coming on. And thanks for I've been wanting to have a conversation like this for a long time. And I'm glad, you know, uh, to have you here and you making the time. So, you know, thanks for thanks for showing up. Absolutely. My pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Great. All right. That's our show. And I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, and thank you, Joe, again, for coming on the show. And everybody, if you want to find um, uh, us, the Radical Therapist, come find us on the social medias uh, at Instagram, the Radical Therapist Instagram. And we have a Facebook page, too. Um, and if you want to email me at the radical therapist at gmail.com, I enjoy getting your emails. That's how this episode came together was an email from a listener, Brendan. Thank you again. 
And yeah, so reach out. And also, if you could, you know, rate and review the show, wherever you're listening from, rate and review the show. That's how we get out in front of other people. It'd be much appreciated. So yeah. So as always, I'm Dr. Chris Hoff. Uh, This has been The Radical Therapist, and thanks for listening.